Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. We have an enormous show for you today. Today, my guest is Coach David Pierce. Coach Pierce is the head baseball coach at the University of Texas, where he's been named National Coach of the Year, Big 12 Coach of the Year. And over the last four years, he's led the Longhorns to the College World Series twice. He also happens to be a former coach of mine, which will be made clear when you listen to the episode. My goal with this conversation was to show you a side of Coach Pierce that only a former player could show you, and I think I largely accomplished that goal. I hope I largely accomplished that goal. I hope anyone who has had a coach or a mentor in their life or anyone who's been a coach or been a mentor to someone else in their life will enjoy listening to our exchange. As always, we quickly move beyond sport, and Coach Pierce provided all the insight, the honesty, the perspective that I could have hoped he would. Coach, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for the mentorship. Thank you for the memories. I promise you, they'll never be forgotten. Ladies and gentlemen, Coach David Pierce. Guys, today's episode is brought to you by a really cool company called Fit People. Our guest today is the head coach from the University of Texas at Austin, and Fit People is an Austin-based company. Fit People is a socially proactive company that creates plant-based health food and supplement products that are better for people, but get this, they're also better for the planet. It's also the only protein I use. Their all-in-one plant-based protein is my go-to everyday all-in-one shake. It has 18 grams of organic protein, greens to help reduce inflammation, fruits to improve immune system support, and adaptogens to help improve resistance to everyday stress. It's the cleanest protein I've found on the market. It also happens to be the tastiest. And this is really cool, guys. Check them out on their website. They're the only company in the industry eliminating plastic from their product completely, all the way down to the palm leaf scoop inside the bag. There's nothing shady in a Fit People product. All their products are non-GMO, gluten-free, plant-based, stevia-free, soy-free, no gums included. So if you want to check them out, you can pop into any Whole Foods in the state of Texas, or you can go to fitpeople.com. Now pay attention, that's F-I-T-P-P-L.com. F-I-T-P-P-L.com. And for our listeners, they're offering 15% off your first order. Just type in examined15 and you'll receive 15% off your first order. Go to fitpeople.com, check them out, get 15% off your first order. All right, coach. We're live. At first, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you taking a chance with a former player. Hi. It's great to see you and, and just be a part of your podcast, be a part of what you got going on. And uh, it's been a while since we've actually spent any time together. Absolutely. I I don't even remember the last time, but I'll tell you how I'm going to start this thing, Coach. So July of 2003, 18 years ago, I received a call that would change the trajectory of my life, and it would certainly set the next steps of my baseball career, but much more importantly, it would determine who were my 
lifelong closest friends. It would determine the guys that would be in my wedding. It would determine the community I would raise my kids in. And you made that call. I don't know if you remember it, but I remember it verbatim. The first thing that you said, you said, Reichenbach, it's Coach Pierce. Are you ready to be a Rice Owl? And I think about those moments a lot. I think about moments that seem insignificant, but yet change the trajectory of your life. So my question around that is nowadays when you call a young man and you say, are you ready to be a Texas Longhorn? Do you take the time to think about the significance of that call beyond baseball? Do you talk to your players about the significance of those calls and that decision? Man, Clay, that is a great question. And honestly, uh, I put a lot of thought in those calls because I do understand the significance of how it changes guys' lives. And it's interesting, too, that most guys don't realize that until they're later in life. And probably at the time, you didn't realize what all the changes that were actually going to take place. And so I think the older I get, the more significant that even becomes. I understand the magnitude of having opportunity and and what it can do and how it changes players' lives. My son played for me, and it was pretty interesting because he never had that call, really, because it was something that he was either going to come to Rice or I'd just been offered the, the job at Sam Houston State. And it was a question between him, myself, and my wife of, do you want to go to Rice and get a Rice degree or do you want to go to Sam Houston State? And he ended up going to Sam Houston State because he wanted his own identity. And I thought that was really important for him for being in our dugout for nine years at Rice. But it hasn't changed a lot. I still get excited about talking to recruits and trying to explain that it's not a four-year decision. It's potentially a lifetime decision. And I think you alluded to that. So, when you get involved in families and you have the ability to change people's lives, I mean, it's exciting. And then you look back in 18 years ago, we're talking about that. Then I really start to understand the significance of it. It's amazing how many of my former players that I still talk to. I was at three different high schools, five different colleges. And I mean, I have former players that are in their fifties now. So it's really different and unique, but I wouldn't change any of it. This is a big question. It may be difficult to put you on the spot, but can you think through your life about a moment that really changed the trajectory of your life? Does anything stick out of something that just completely upended the direction you were headed? Oh, man. I mean, there's so many things. My journey has been very interesting and really very different. I lost my dad when I was 12, just turned 13 years old, and my mom never worked. My dad was a railroad mechanic. I had a brother a year older than me, a sister five years older than me, and you know, we were lost, and we were dependent on our best friends, uh, families, dads for guidance, and then coaches. And as I grew and went to St. Pius High School, became some of my best friends, and it was all because of the support that I got from coaches and dads and, and families, or we, we wouldn't have made it and it wouldn't have turned out the way we had hoped. And we were very fortunate when it came to that, but then had an opportunity. And there's so many people that along my journey that helped me, I had an opportunity to go play JC ball, 
wasn't the exact opportunity I wanted, but it turned out pretty darn good. And then I had another opportunity to go play for the University of Houston. After that, I got married. But I guess what I'm alluding to is just along every stage of my life, if it were in my adolescent period, in my early 20s, there was always people there that supported me and helped me. And, you know, quite frankly, I could have gone either way. I could have gone on the other side of the track and gotten really been in a lot of trouble. And fortunately, I had great guidance and kept me in sports and kept me in, in baseball and it changed my life. But the real answer to your question, after two years of being in the business world, I realized that I wasn't really a part of a team. I realized that it's not what I wanted to do for a living, but I wasn't real sure what I was going to do for a living. And so I looked up and I'm 24 years old, went back to school, finished my degree and had an opportunity again for my former high school coach, who was at the time the athletic director at my alma mater, St. Pius, and I became the head baseball coach, offensive backs coach, and had five history classes. And uh, it was the greatest time ever. I thought I was in Yankee Stadium. I thought that's where I'm supposed to be. And the first time I threw batting practice, I knew that was my office. And so those early years of working in the business world realizing that I had no choice to go do something else helped me survive through, you know, some tough times whenever you're not winning or, you know, you're trying to figure out how to get the most out of a player or you're maybe financially not making as much money as you would like. And so that just continued. The process just continued. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to Episcopal High School. I thought I was going to be there a year, ended up being there four years. But then I had a chance to go to Dobie High School down in South Houston. And when I was there, you know, I was there for five and a half years. We built a field on campus. All this stuff was happening. And I never thought about the next job. I never thought about, well, if I do well, I can go into a bigger school or a better school. Or if i uh really good at this, that I could get into college baseball. Those were never thoughts. I think... Uh, I think there's a lesson there for everyone is to really be where your feet are and be grounded and be present with the people that you're working with. And that's always been pretty easy for me. And I've always enjoyed the simplicity of that. I got a call from Rainer Noble, uh, Houston, and I became the number two assistant at Houston. And it's, I'm giving you a long answer, but it's progressive because it seems like every place that I went to, I took a step back financially to move on. So it took a step back to go forward financially. And so I took a big hit being a high school coach to go to the University of Houston at the time as the number two assistant. And then uh, we were real successful there for two years. The camps and, and lessons was a big deal. And so we were able to make enough money to feel pretty comfortable and actually make more money than I was going to make as a high school coach. So it just took off that I had an opportunity to go see Coach Graham. So this this progression has been really amazing. I didn't coach my first college baseball game until I was 37 years old. When I went back to school, I didn't know I was going to be a coach, but I did know that I wasn't going to be in the business world. And education and people and young people has always been the thing that I've enjoyed and watching their growth. And at the end of the day, if we have a great season, it's still about the growth and development. Well, you talked about always focusing on the job in front of you. My next question is kind of about 
your goals and expectations from the start. So we're recording this interview from Dishfalk Field, where you've now been a national coach of the year. You've been Big 12 coach of the year. You've taken the horns to Omaha twice in the last five years, which I know is more important to you than any individual award ever could be. When you started this journey, did you look this far ahead? Did you have goals, aspirations that were this big? No, I really didn't. I I really enjoyed coaching day-to-day with our players. And I think by doing it that way, it always kept me present and it always allowed me to give all my attention to our team. And I'm a big family guy, so it was either our team, whichever it was, if it was football, if it was coaching freshman basketball, if it was, of course, my love, baseball, has always been what I wanted to do. And so I never really looked at the next job, but by working in camps at Houston gave me opportunity, and then people realized that, you know, maybe I could – be a pretty good college coach. Do you think you'd be as successful as you've been if you were looking towards the next job? I mean, maybe that's the lesson is you're not going to be successful unless you're present, unless you're focusing on what you're doing. Now, we talk to our team right now a lot about distractions and the world is full of distractions. When you look at young people dealing with social media, we deal with advisors, we deal with scouts. And so if we can get them locked in on our coaching staff and our, on our goals and, and our day-to-day, then they've got a chance to be their best. And so I don't think so. Like I said, I've always been a pretty simple person, and and it's been pretty easy to be in the present for me. But I do think as you get a little older and you start looking at, man, I think I, I'm ready to go to that next step. And I would say probably my last three years at Rice – Eight, nine, ten. Uh, I left in eleven. I would say about that time I started thinking, I don't want to be a recruiting coordinator at the age of fifty. I want to make sure that I give myself an opportunity to be a head coach, and it didn't matter where. Again, it didn't matter where. I just felt like I was ready to take that next step, and so I got that opportunity at Sam Houston State in June of two thousand eleven. But that was probably the first time I started looking ahead a little bit of what we could do moving forward. And, and it was more about opportunity. It was more about running my own, own program as opposed to being unhappy because I wasn't unhappy at all. That was just the next step in my career. You just mentioned leaving Rice, leaving Houston where you had a lot of success. Leaving Rice meant taking on uncertainty. It meant the possibility of failure, maybe even the probability of failure relocating your family multiple times, situations where you could do everything right and some scared shitless 19-year-old kid like me could screw it up for you. These things in life, not just in sport, stop a lot of people from taking the first step, what I would call making space for greatness. How did you avoid letting those challenges, those sacrifices stop you from taking the first step? First of all, I don't think it's luck. I think you create your own destiny. You create your own opportunities. So I was fortunate to go to Rice. I want to tell you this story before we get into the answer of that. When I was at Houston and at the end of the 2002 season, we were I thought we were one of the best teams in the country, and we lost the Super Regional here. At, and I was here in the stands for that. Yeah, well, I was on the field, and we, we lost that one, but – uh, the point being is when 
when I was asked to come over to Rice, I uh, went in the, the interview with Coach Graham and probably sat with him two to three hours. And I didn't do much of the talking, and it was, it was a job that I was interviewing for. And I just remember going through the lineup and him telling me about different guys like Cokehorse. He's got a little hitch in his swing. Understand that if you give him good batting practice, he's going to hit. I said, okay, I, I get that. And our two-hole is Austin Davis. Now, Austin is a unorthodox type hitter. Uh, he kind of has some length to his swing. Whatever you do, just give him great batting practice because he's a great hitter. Don't don't mess that up. So I'm starting to get the, the hint here. And then we get to Vincent Sinisi, who hit 400 the year before, one of the best hitters in the country. And he goes, now, Vincent, left-handed hitter, really great hitter. Whatever you do, don't screw him up. Just throw him good batting practice. And at that point, I realized that he really wanted me to work with this team from a standpoint of give us some great left-handed batting practice, hit some good fungo, and just be a piece of this. And I never forget either. He said, now, Justin Ruckty, Enrique Cruz, he goes, I'm like Pontius Pilate. I wash my hands of them, fix them. And we went to work on those guys. But we stayed out of the way of the guys that could really or already felt like they had a plan, had a good approach, and had a great swing. And we won the national championship that year. And I'll just never forget that the year before, Rice was eliminated in 02 by Texas, and Texas won the national championship. So in 03, we eliminated Texas, and we went on to win the national championship. But the point being is, because I had a talent of throwing left-handed batting practice, is probably why he actually hired me. They hit 212 against left-handers the year before. So he had a plan of what he needed to make that team better. So it's about opportunity when you have some abilities and and I recognized that my ability was to help the team in a certain way and then it's about hanging on to it it's about growing in your job growing in the development of what we're trying to accomplish let me jump in there for a second and I'm not saying this because you're sitting here in front of me to the Texas faithful coach Pierce you're the greatest instructor I've ever had I've had great coaches of all types but as far as instruction to break down a technique and implement it in a way that fits for this player. I've never met someone like yourself. I'll give you an example, or I'll give the listeners an example. I was a front foot hitter until I got to Rice, and I always heard, be soft on your front side, quit getting on your front side. And I got to Rice, and you said to me, you said, I don't want passive swing thoughts. I want aggressive swing thoughts. Forget about being soft on your front side. Be as aggressive as you can on your backside. And you can't be on your front side. And I've heard to be soft on your front side for five years. It never changed anything. And you said it in a way that made sense. You said it in a way that I could apply it that was simple. Be aggressive on that backside and it takes care of itself. And I tell kids that 18 years later. And so, again, I I think Coach Graham recognized, hey, here's a guy who can do something that I probably don't do as well. I think definitely didn't do as well. Well, I think that a great leader understands the strength of his staff. And the way I would say that to you potentially is what I'm going to say, maybe the same thing differently to another hitter. Because it doesn't matter as coaches, as educators, it doesn't matter what we know. What matters is that 
the student, the pupil, the player can comprehend it and then apply it. And that's the key. That's the entire key to coaching is how do you get across the information that you feel like they need to be successful and put them in the best position to continue their development. And it's about confidence too. It's not just about the swing. I mean, we talk a lot about confidence much more and big in the box and much more about mentality than the swing itself. And we could get into some detail on baseball, but there's so many different variables that go into coaching and go into to just being supportive of players too. And I've learned a lot in my years of what not to do and what I feel like works best. And a lot of it's just individualized. Each player's different. And I think if you can take the time and really recognize that, you put your player in the best position to have success. So many guys are different. I mean, I remember Vincent Senecio would come in my office after every game and look at his at-bats. And all he wanted to do is see if he swung at the right pitches and counts. And, and, and so I would be an open door. He'd come in. I said very little. He would look at the film. We'd agree. He'd walk out. That's all he needed. Another guy needs some flip toss. Another guy needs uh, a wholesale change. Another guy needs a mental approach because he's hooking everything. So I think the key is understanding your players, and that's the relationships that we're looking for to to be in a position to actually communicate and develop. Well, you talked about confidence, which is a topic we speak about on this podcast all the time. And back when I was at Rice, we were facing guys like Houston Street at Texas. And I remember talking about it with you and with Coach Graham. If you don't believe you're better than him in that box, it's over with. And you may not be. I certainly was not better. But you better go in believing that. And I think you were hitting on that, too, that sometimes that's more important than the technique is walking into that box, putting your foot in the box and thinking, I'm better than this guy because otherwise you don't have a chance. No doubt. I mean, two years ago, I did an article with Baseball Insider. And in that article, they were talking about the difference of players today. And I think it's culture. I think the culture is we grow up in batting cages and we start structure before we understand the game and before we just go play. And so that mix of how do you approach that? So Nowadays, I feel like at times we put the cart before the horse. In, in other words, we're teaching mechanics, analytics, before we teach mentality and mental approach, uh, mental game plan, mental routines. And so we've done a really good job here at Texas of flipping that and going back to mentality, mental approach, mechanical, and then analytics when needed. And so there's a, a blend that you have to be prepared for but if you go into just trying to fix a swing, doesn't mean you're a better hitter. It's about me against you, and in that competition, I'm better than you no matter what happens. Uh, I mean, I have so many great stories. I remember, I think it, we were in Hawaii, and Austin Davis struck out on called third strike. And he comes in the dugout, and it was a borderline low pitch. And he looked at me, and he says, Coach, that ball, that ball was low, right? And I said, mm. I think it was there. He goes, no way, it was low. Umpire screwed me. And at that point, I'm thinking, I love that attitude because Austin didn't swing and miss, and Austin had a great eye. 
but he was so confident that that was a mistake by the umpire that he didn't mess it up. The umpire did, but he didn't carry it over to his next at bat. He used that for information. And I just thought it was a great approach by him when you talk about confidence of he had it. He had confidence where you throw it in there and he's going to hit it. If it's a ball, he understood it was a ball. And that frustrates hitters at times because we have some great hitters now that understand the strike zone probably better than most umpires. It's frustrating when they get called against them, but the ability to understand it and not put it in an umpire's hands as much and try to stay out of two strikes, pretty much the key because it's going to happen. Well, let's go back to my initial question. When you made the jump from assistant to oh, you, head, you actually asked a different uh, question. We asked a different question. <laughs> when you made the jump from assistant coach to head coach and you were facing upending your family, taking on risk, uncertainty, what allowed you to take that first step? What gave you the confidence to take that first step and get outside of your comfort zone at Rice? Well, we started this interview by you talking about a phone call that I made to you, and you spent only two years at Rice because you were you're a transfer, a JC transfer. I spent nine years of my life at Rice University. Uh, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears, a lot of hard work, a lot of fun. Still have so many great relationships there. Still talk to Coach Graham, still talk to Coach Taylor quite a bit, and a lot of former players. But what's interesting is when I left, it was a timing deal. I was ready to move on. I was prepared for for whatever happens. If I would have failed and couldn't get a job back into college baseball, I would have been perfectly fine to go back to high school baseball at the time because I was so ready to take on that challenge. And so if you're if you're fearful fearful of that, you're not going to be successful. If you look back, you're not going to be successful. So you have to make that decision and move forward. And you know, I tell players or even my own kids, I said, once you make a decision, after you gathered information, you've got the percentages, you've got information that you feel like is pertinent to the reason why you take the job or move to a different city or whatever the case is, you look forward. And we built a house in Huntsville thinking we may be there the rest of our lives. And we, we weren't moving to move to Sam Houston State, to move to Tulane, to move to Texas. That wasn't the goal. The goal was to go be the best we could be in Huntsville, Texas, at Sam Houston State. I think because, and we'll go back to the simplicity of the day-to-day and being engulfed in the day-to-day, it allowed opportunity to happen after that. We were really good. We won the league three years in a row and the first time ever in the Southland that a team was in a large bid in three consecutive years we were to be able to advance into the regionals. So that created opportunity. And it, it didn't create opportunity because of me or just the coaches. It created opportunity because we had players that bought into what we do. They were talented, and they had a blast. I don't think you can do anything in life if you don't enjoy it. And we had – I've had fun – at every stop along the way and have met so many great people and so many great former players and still have those relationships. Well, I think of two lessons as I hear you speak. Number one, 
is you got to focus on stacking bricks. And if you're not stacking that brick as perfectly as you can stack it, if you're focusing on the cathedral that you're thinking you're building, you're never going to build that cathedral. And a couple of weeks ago, I had Jeff Tarpinian on the podcast, Texans linebacker, Patriots linebacker. And he spoke about, I think the way he phrased it is making space for unlikely outcomes, making space for greatness. And if you don't make that space, you're never going to be great. You don't step away from rice and say, yeah, I may fall on my face, but if I don't give some space for this unlikely outcome, I'm never going to be great. I may be good. I may be above average, but I'm certainly not going to be great. Now, greatness is built. It really is. And it's day to day. And it's, it's something that I think if you're looking at it as a big picture, you have no shot. I mean, the big picture is as a head coach now is kind of my job to identify it, kind of gathering everyone together and allowing them to understand the big picture. But we focus on the day-to-day. And I think people will understand when you come to Texas, when you're in our bubble, you know, you think that everybody really loves you. When you get outside of this bubble, not very many people are fond of the University of Texas. And I think it's because, you know, we're considered to have resources. We're considered to have entitlement. I'll be honest with you. When I came to Texas, I thought there was entitlement. I felt like players didn't work as hard as they needed to work. I thought they focused on the materialistic things that came along with the university and came along with this program. And it was a short period, but it was here. Uh, We immediately got rid of that, and I'm just so proud of where we are in our culture and with with our program right now where the expectation is what it needs to be. But that doesn't just happen. And when you're talking about greatness, that that didn't happen the first day we showed up because we'd won at Tulane. It's about building relationships, creating respect between players and coaches and, and wanting to be great together. And I think that was a key for us. And we just continue to do that every day from our staff all the way through our players, our support staff. You mentioned Tulane. You mentioned Sam Houston State. You were extremely successful there. You won at Tulane. You won at Sam Houston State. You've won at Texas. But I assume there had to be tough times. There had to be doubt. There had to be stress, insecurity, maybe even tough on your family moving around. What are your strategies for dealing with stress, dealing with anxiety, dealing with setbacks? Every single coach, every single player has self-doubt at some point. And I think at some point you have to mask that a little bit and you have to have the ability to have mechanisms to fight it off. I get aggressive. I tend to get very aggressive when my back's against the wall, when I don't feel comfortable. You know, I can recall leaving Sam Houston State, both my coaches going to Tulane with us, all of us selling houses, buying houses. I had a little 1,500-square-foot house, but it was – that was spotless, and uh, Wally Pontiff, and Rice folks will recognize that name. His son, Wally Jr., played third base, and his last game before he passed away was in a regional against Rice, and we actually gave his family third base from Rice University, which I thought was really pretty cool. That had happened before I got there. I think it was 2 But anyway, uh, Wally Pontiff's brother put us to live there, and I was – 
the one paying the rent and the coaches were coming in and out. We were trying to sell homes and buy homes. And it's just all these struggles of just uprooting your family and, and then, then starting over and then building a new culture and a new program and then, and just constant movement. But uh, long story short, I moved 11 times from the day I left Rice until I moved in the house that I live in right now. And so it'll test your marriage for sure. It will definitely test your commitment to your family and how they see things. And that's where I've been really blessed. Both my wife and both my kids have just been so supportive along the way. But it was hard to leave Sam Houston State, Huntsville, Texas, Texas kid my whole life, to go to New Orleans, Louisiana was just not me. And that job happened to fall into place. And it was because we created it, but didn't want to, I didn't even want to take that call and ended up going there. It was the best thing we ever did for two years. I didn't want to retire in New Orleans, but we had two great years there before we were fortunate to come back home and come to, come to Texas. But it's difficult. I think you put a lot of stress on them, but I think the way that you handle that is a lot of that comes from your roots. It's innate where, you know, there's just something in you that drives you and, and, and there's something in there that tells you every single day that it's going to be good. And it's, we're working towards something. And, and I've never gotten down or, or stressed out to the point that I couldn't handle that moment where I felt like I'm just overwhelmed. Now, there's been times where we've thrown things up against the wall trying to figure out a player or a lineup or prioritizing something to make sure it gives us the best chance to win. And you're not always right. I think that's the beauty of it is that you can do so many different things and accept the failure. I will say when you come to Texas, every move you make is exposed. And so it's questioned. So there's some things that stress is a part of that. But just quickly, I'll tell you, when I went to Sam Houston State, I replaced Mark Johnson, who's a great coach at A&M. But I absorbed a team that wasn't very good. So we had their attention. When we went to Tulane, we replaced Rick Jones, who was there for 21 years, built that program. But they had struggled a couple of years before. So they were ready for a change, and we were the right change. And the same thing happened here. I followed, you know, the all-time winning this coach college baseball at the time, but they had struggled a couple of years coming in. So the transition made it a little bit easier for us, knowing that we were going to a program that needed a change and the players were ready for a change. And so that was, uh, that, that definitely made it easier. The other piece of that is something that's very unusual and that you haven't seen in college baseball probably and maybe never will see. Uh, when we, when I went to Sam, we built that staff with Philip Miller and Sean Allen, and they were there with me for three years. Went to Tulane, they came with me to Tulane, and now at Texas. So you have three coaches that have been together for three different universities, going on eleven years. That's unprecedented. I mean, you just you're probably never see that again, and. And that right there is something I'm very proud of because it goes back to loyalty, respect. It goes back to taking care of people the right way and just friendships. 
it goes back to the simplicity of how I've always lived my life. Before we get to the University of Texas, I want to talk to you a bit about motivating young people, which is crucial for what you do for a living. I don't think there's any chance you remember this, Coach, but we were on our way back from California on a plane ride at Rice, and you and I sat next to each other. And we had this probably hour-long conversation about motivation. And I remember specifically you saying, a great coach recognizes very quickly when a kid needs a pat on the ass and when a kid needs a kick in the ass. I want you to speak about your motivating style, how it's evolved. How do you pick up on those things early on as a coach? I'm impressed that you remember these conversations, but I appreciate it. You know, as you're older and you're teaching and you're you're talking and you're, I guess, in the development stage, you don't look at it as the way we're looking at it now. So it kind of opens my eyes. But I think there's an ability that people have, an innate ability, an intuition, an instinct of reading people. And I don't think I would have been a great businessman. I don't think I could sell insurance. But I've always invested in kids and I've always invested in kids movement. And, and I like to pay attention to body language. You asked me earlier, the difference of being a position coach, you know, where the technical piece is always there to move it into a management position as the head coach. When I went to Sam Houston, I had to take a step back and go, all right, what's going to be my role? How am I going to motivate our coaches and create this image of what we're looking for of the type of team that we want to be. And so it's a lot of day-to-day with the coaches of strategy and how we want to perform things. And quite frankly, a lot of what we do is what we did at Rice as far as some of the simplest things and being good at them. And so we've carried that on. But I think more than anything is that we work very hard but I think I'm pretty good at reading people's body language and understanding if a kid is struggling psychologically because I know what's going on with his academics and I know that uh, maybe he just broke up with his girlfriend and I try to get involved in that, but also I'm just not going to accept them not performing at the highest level they're capable of. And so I'm going to, I'm really going to kind of, pay attention to that one person there's days that I go to practice and I may focus on three players the entire day and I just want to watch their movement and they'll give you information I listen a lot I think I'm a really good listener and I think that's very critical in management and I like feedback and so I listen pay attention to coaches pay attention to players and then when I have opportunity then I usually attack that you mentioned being impressed that I remember these things. All your players do. All of us do. I drove into Austin. I live in Houston. I stayed with an old teammate of mine, that player of yours, Kyle Gunderson. And on the way out of the house, he says, tell Coach Pierce hi and tell him thank you for calling me. When I made AAA, he was the only coach that called me. And that meant a lot to me. This is 15 years ago. How does it make you feel to know that you are currently imparting wisdom, knowledge, experiences, maybe even negative experiences at times. And you've been doing it to kids that are not only going to 
experience it in real time, they're going to remember it 20, 30 years. I'm going to tell these stories and your players are going to tell these stories for the rest of their life. I mean, my dad still tells me stories about Coach Gus. What do you think when you hear about that? When you think about the significance of me telling you verbatim quotes that you said to me 20 years ago? That's pretty awesome. I mean, it makes me feel very good. And, you know, I think eventually that's what you realize the older you get. You just start realizing that's really what it's about. Maybe at the time we didn't realize it. I appreciate Kyle talking and and telling you that. But, I mean, Ryan Berry can probably remember me throwing a chair over his head, too, (laughs) in a pitcher's meeting. So uh, they're not all positive, but sometimes the message is different. I'll never forget we got swept at Central Arkansas when I was at Sam Houston State. And I wasn't a very good coach at that time when we got on the bus because we had an eight-hour bus ride. And I went up and down the aisle twice. I got the bus driver and the trainer off because they were both females. And I didn't think it was right for them to hear what was about to happen to this team. But it was a time of reengaging their minds. And there's usually a method to the madness. There's I used a time to, for a kick in the ass. <laughs> there was a time for a real kick in the ass. And, and, I think there's usually a method to the madness, and I used to say that about Coach Graham all the time. Is like some of his ass chewings were really predetermined. He knew that that was the timing of of the team and what we needed, coaches included. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I, it's a timing deal. I mean, you just you know, you know, there's a sense of I can't let this team get away. Uh, we just got swept, so I'm going to shock the hell out of them right now and then get them as pissed about it as I am. And we're going back to work next week. Cause the last thing I told them is that we're going to win the league and we're going to advance into the regional. So it always ends with a positive, I guess it's the sandwich effect. You know, you beat them up positive finish, beating them up or reversal you start out nice and calm and positive, And then you beat them up in the middle and then you finish with the positive. And, you know, that's something that some people do it and do it well. And some people have great timing with it. And I think it's something that you have to work at, too. I mean, if you're going to be good at fielding ground balls, you better go out there and put the time in. And, and that's what I do. I mean, that's that's what I do for a living. And so it's very appreciative when I hear stories. And, of course, we laugh at the stories that maybe not are so appealing that but still create a good message for sure. You can define success a lot of ways, and we talk about that a lot on this show, but right up there near the top has to be players coming back 20, 30 years later and thanking you for a call or thanking you for an insight. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. But you mentioned growing up, leaning on coaches for more than just a coach without a father. I think to give fans a peek behind the curtain, college coaches are oftentimes more than coaches. I can remember, again, I don't know whether you remember this, but I took a job in commercial real estate in the first interview. I'd graduated. I'm in my apartment. I'm getting dressed. And I realized I can't tie a tie. Do you remember this? And what <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So what do I do? I scramble up to Reckling Park at Rice 
and I find you and you tied my first tie for my first job. How about that? And I- European style, because that's the only <laughs> tie I know. It was beautiful. But do you think of yourself this way as more than a coach? Do you take that role seriously? Yeah, I do. I, I, I just think it's awesome to hear some of the simple stories of, you know, what made a difference. And and I think players go through this period of coming in when they're 18 years old and, and there's a sense of, hey, I've made it. I made it to college baseball. And it's actually just the start. It, it's really just the start of the next chapter. And then what happens after that? We we allow it to happen, but those are pretty impressive to just reflect back and, and think about the difference that you can make in a, in a person's life and to enjoy it and to be genuine when you do it. And I think, I think we had a lot of great players around us to make it enjoyable. Yeah. There's, there's so many different ways to direct this. I mean, you know, if it's in a cage and a, and a and the light goes off for a player or, or mechanical movement or a big play, and and I think nowadays there's so much information and, and players are just it's tough to be young. It's tough to be 18 to 22 years old. And the one thing I think I've found out that I've gotten better at, and I can honestly say this is that I've learned how to take pressure off of players. Uh, more so than putting pressure on players. Our players are very motivated. They're highly motivated. They want to have success. And, and they get a lot of pressure from their own support systems. And so it's our job to kind of relax them and give them this sacred environment that they're in for the next three to four years. And I think if we can go there, then you can see a player's development, not only on the field, but mentally and you can see how a player just grows up into a young man and then they're able to also look back at the ways that they can help teammates or you know future teammates we we've had some players where I really just felt like that they had the ability to make people around them better and I think if you surround yourself with those types of players you're going to have success Let's talk about the pressure to perform a little bit. There's only a few programs in the nation that rival Texas as far as expectations and pressure to perform. Were you mindful of this coming in? Did outside expectations play much of a role in your thought? It never has. And it's remarkable mentally that I have felt so confident and so secure because I had no real skin in the game to fill that. I remember when I was a kid, I was an Astros buddy and everybody wanted the players autographs and I wanted to play catch. Uh, you know, it, I was just never enamored with the bigness of it, I guess, or the greatness of the University of Texas. I just felt like it's an opportunity for me to go work and coach some of the best players in the country and try to win a lot of games and it's just developed into much more than that for sure where do you think that comes from is that just innate or did you learn that did you have a mentor i think it's in the process i think it's part of 
every stage of your life that you learn different things and you learn how to compartmentalize. You learn how to take what works and you write it down. I write a lot of things down. I've got stacks of eight and a half by 11 notepads. And so I just reference over and over and then the good and the bad. But I do think there's something in there that just says we can do this and you're, you have the ability to look at a player and I've never recruited a player. I want to talk in circles, but I've never recruited a player and thought what he couldn't do. Always recruit a player knowing what he can do and how we can enhance what he can do and stay away from the things he can't do. I mean, at times people think we're really a, a short game team. We don't sacrifice bunt near as much as people think we do, but we bunt for hits with guys that can run and guys that learn how to bunt. I love the three-run homer, but not everybody can hit it. So you just try to position people, players, in the best position to to help the team win, to have personal success. I, that's what I've always been caught into. I mean, I love to watch film. I love the the process of preparation to play a single ball game. The time that we put in to play one baseball game is incredible. But I enjoy that. I like that preparation to then go see the result. What's your self-talk when you're preparing? You mentioned trying to get players relaxed and let their talent show. Are What's most productive for you? Are you highly critical of yourself? Are you very positive? What's, what's Coach Pierce's self-talk? It usually comes down to preparation for me. If I'm prepared and I feel really comfortable about how we want to approach this game and and there's a hiccup in that game weekend series i just feel like we have a go-to i used to get pretty loud and at times attack players that i didn't think was you know looking back it didn't do us any good i probably just stressed them out and put a little bit more pressure on them and so now i've learned how to communicate a little bit better with them where you know, instead of a challenge at that time, I may go to a player and go, what are you thinking there? And create a little better dialogue with the players. And I think I've I've learned that in the last few years, to be honest with you. And, and that's the beauty of coaching and being around young people is that you're going to learn something new every day. I learn from players. I learn from other teams. I learn from former players. I still talk to former coaches my brother-in-law is a former great coach in the NFL, Gary Kubiak, and we're always talking about this kind of stuff of, you know, what do you think about this? And it's usually not about the bunk coverage because he coached football. Talked to Coach Graham a little bit about the ins and outs of the psychology piece of coaching a player or a movement or a skill. And so I like to gather information before I just jump into making big decisions. And I like to be surrounded with people that are smart and surrounded with people that are invested in the in the program as as myself and both of our coaches we added Troy Tulowitzki on our staff and you know he's been another great set of eyes and ears for us we'll wrap this up here shortly coach but I have two questions for you one revolving around teams and the other one is a bit more personal to end it on but over the years you've spent coaching, you haven't really had any bad teams, but what are the difference between 
your good teams and your great teams other than the obvious? That's really a pretty easy question to answer because it comes down to sacrificing for each other and being unselfish. And when you see that immediately and guys start trying to make teammates better, when you talk about your program and wanting to have this created culture, which I think is another buzzword that gets overused. Culture's about people. Culture's about an extension of the message, but doing things for each other. We had a player. I I found this pretty interesting this past fall, a pitcher that couldn't – he was throwing everything into the net, and he he got the yips. And because of that, we couldn't throw him in the back end of fall ball and, and squad in the early spring. He was in the in the cage by himself and off the indoor mounds and and he's just kind of all over the map mentally and he's he's asking and it's all about him. It's all about him. And finally, I just went a different route. I said, you know what? Nobody on your team really cares because every time you talk to him, you want to talk about yourself and what your problems are. When you can take a step back and start making an effort to check on them, you're going to find out that things start happening better for you. All of a sudden, he started setting up batting practice in the spring by himself. He started hitting fungo to infielders. All of a sudden, his relationship with them changed. His mind cleared, started throwing strikes, started finding the mitt, started gaining his confidence back. Because now he wasn't just receiving, he was giving. And I thought that was just so critical in his development. And he's pitching well, and he's going to continue to help this team. That's an awesome message. So last question, Coach, and you can answer this as a coach, as a person, as a husband, as a father. What do you think are your strengths, and what are the areas that you still really want to improve? Oh, man. I got a lot to improve for sure. (laughs) I think my strengths are probably that I'm very, very consistent. Every single day, you know what you're going to get from me. And I feel like I'm a good listener. And you're not going to outwork me. You can work with me, but you're not going to outwork me. And I think players see that and and love that about me. I've got plenty of weaknesses, too. And, And I will start with sometimes I'll probably say things that I shouldn't say that I probably just need to hold inside and let it develop. I know I could be a little bit more patient and not necessarily with the player's success or lack of success, but just patient overall of my own family's development or my wife's aspirations being attentive for that, the needs of what's happening with support staff. Just, I think just creating a little bit more patience and, and just being there for people. I, I feel like I am, but at the same time, I can definitely improve that. Well, Coach, I think it's clear you made an impact on my life. You've made an impact on a lot of my best friends' lives, and I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you so much. Clay, thanks for having me. Uh, it's just kind of felt like we went down memory lane today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Coach.